Welcome to Defining Equity, a show meant to center and celebrate those living at the margins. Today, we're going to be having a conversation about queer women and health disparities. Oftentimes, when discussing LGBTQ health disparities, queer women are often casted to the side in favor of discussions of disparities that most affect cisgender queer men, particularly white men. So today, to combat that, we are joined by Taniqua Hines, the Women's Health Coordinator at Fenway Health, an organization whose mission it is to enhance the health of the LGBTQ community through increasing access to high-quality healthcare, education, research, and advocacy. Taniqua's role combines advocacy, solidarity, and creativity in a way that I'm super excited to dive into. <laughs> so without further ado, Taniqua, everyone. Thinking more about how can we center, when we talk about healthcare and health access, we can center it on queer women. And also when we think about queer women, like the whole queer community, it's also very diverse. Mm-hmm. So thinking about lesbian women, bi women, trans women, as well as pansexual folks, non-binary folks, and also we need to consider other intersecting identities such as race, disability, immigrant status, and age, and how that can also affect folks' access to, to health care. Mm-hmm. And specifically, I think I'm going to take an approach that considers intersectionality as well as resilience. How I think of intersectionality, thinking of its origins from a Black woman, she specifically used it to define the discrimination that Black women face. It's not that Black women are Black or women. They're both. Mm. You can't you can't talk about the discrimination they face without recognizing that there are two forms of oppression that they face separately, but also that can intersect and happen at the same time. Mm. So recognizing that for LGBTQ folks, that can happen, you know, for sexual orientation as well as other identities that they face. And then when we think about how to respond to these health disparities, thinking about resilience. You know, the LGBT community goes through so much in order to try and cope with different environmental stressors that they face. And this is definitely very unfortunate, but it also we also kind of form ways to become more resourceful and survive. And this is a form of resilience and how we look to our community for resources and to empower ourselves. So looking at resiliency as a form to flip repression on its side and be like, you know what, we have survived, we have been trying to survive for so many years and we've been so resourceful. So thinking about intersectionality and resilience as these forms to respond to mm-hmm. So uh, first I'm going to dive into what health disparities lesbian and bisexual women face, and then I'm going to hone in more on bisexual women and biphobia because I think that that's really important, and then talk about trans women as well. Mm-hmm. So when we think about LGBTQ folks, we need to think about the environmental stressors that they face. So thinking about how, you know, like we're socialized into environments, specifically from the home to school to the workplace, if people enter the workplace or just into everyday interactions. There are certain norms that society sets us up to believe that, you know, we live in this gender binary for only men and women and that folks only engage in straight or, you know, different sex relationships. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, sexuality and gender is very fluid. However, you know, norms don't expect us to react in such ways. So mm-hmm. lesbian and bi women and, you know, women in general are, are reacting to these environmental stressors, whether in school, from bullying, whether in the workplace, from discrimination or being paid less. So when we think about lesbian and bi women, they're more likely to have a higher body mass index. And what does this mean? So medically, it means being categorized as overweight and obese. And I think that this comes with a lot of weight to it, specifically the negative connotations and how, you know, medically we tell people, oh, you need to be weight because, you know, you'll face X, Y, Z risk factors. But I think mm-hmm. we need to approach it from a more body positive perspective and think about it not for the person to conform to society, but for the person to do it for their, themselves in their own environment. Mm-hmm. Thinking about exercise as a way 
to empower themselves as a way to relieve environmental and mental stressors. The way that, you know, exercise releases endorphins as a way to reward yourself. Mm-hmm. And thinking about everybody is different. Everybody does not have to be the same. So, you know, approaching it from this perspective, I think, is really great. Mm-hmm. In terms of other factors that uh, lesbian and bi women face, you know, how they cope with their environmental stressors can be through substance use as well as smoking. And they tend to use substances and smoke more to their heterosexual counterparts. Mm-hmm. Bi women are more likely to smoke the highest in comparison to a lesbian and straight women. Mm. So seeing these as ways that our community has coped with this because of not only targeted adding from tobacco companies, but because society has continued to try and reinforce that they're not good enough, that their sexuality is something that shouldn't be accepted. Mm. And, you know, this is the internal dialogue that goes on. So then folks are also dealing with anxiety as well as depression. And so there's more instances of this as well as attempted suicide. And then when we think about how folks interact with others in their own relationships, lesbian women are just as likely as heterosexual men to face domestic violence. However, they're less likely to report. So thinking about how we define domestic violence as being physical, emotional, and financial abuse, but usually it's thought of only as a type of abuse that happens from a man to a woman and not thinking that it can happen vice versa or in same-sex relationships. This makes it difficult for lesbian women to report this. Mm-hmm. And as well as bi women are even more likely actually to face domestic violence mm-hmm. than their heterosexual and lesbian counterparts. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so these are just a couple of health factors that aren't considered. And a couple of things that I mentioned before, such as smoking, substance use, and a higher BMI also leads to you know higher risk of cancer as well as the lower screening rates of certain cancer screenings. So thinking about like pap tests, mammograms, and colonoscopies. So we need to think about, you know, like why aren't lesbian and bisexual women getting these? Is it because the medical system has continued to ask them, oh, so how is your boyfriend or your husband doing? Rather than opening the question, asking about their partner themselves. Right. Or, you know, they might not have a partner, you know, like opening the question to how about you define yourself rather than me define you based on norms that we've been taught. Right. That's real. And I know you said you were going to speak a little bit to the health disparities that trans women specifically face. Would you mind just like, mm-hmm. talking a little bit about that as well? Yeah, no problem. So, I mean, when we think about trans women, we need to think about how society views them and how they view themselves. So trans folks identifying with a different gender than assigned at birth and how the world sees that and how the world identifies that. And kind of due to this gender discrimination and due to transphobia as well as sexism, trans women face high rates of discrimination. And this is in form of housing, jobs, bullying within school, physical and sexual assault, as well as homelessness. So they face disproportionate rates of abuse compared to their cisgender counterparts. And when we say cisgender, that means folks who identify with the same gender assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. And when we think about barriers of care, thinking about how these challenges build up in terms of trying to access care. So, for example, if someone is facing, for trans women, you know, um, an employment rate, you know, twice as the general population, what's more important, getting a checkup or trying to find housing? So Mm -hmm. thinking about this mode of survival that we put trans women in and how they react to it. So trans women are more likely to engage in sex work in order to relieve themselves from these economic challenges. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, this can also put them at risk for um, more STDs. This can also put them at risk for assault as well. And then we also need to talk about rates on top of that. So thinking about Latino and Black trans women facing disproportionate rates of 
HIV diagnosis and also disproportionate rates of murders is talked about, you know, Black Lives Matter also talking about trans women and including them in the narrative as well. Mm, Thank you so much for providing that context and illuminating the specific health disparities that queer and trans women experience. So I'm just curious, like, tell us a little bit about your role at Fenway Health, like describe the work that you do. Yeah. So I think it's very interesting because I think with the nonprofits, it's interesting in that you get multiple roles. (laughs) Right. Um, And can be great in terms of giving you a wide variety of skills. So specifically what I do as a women's health program coordinator is I provide support in terms of admin work, health education, research and outreach. Mm -hmm. So in terms of administrative work, I help to bring in different folks from the community as well as the medical professionals to provide training as well as context for our team. Mm -hmm. So I'll bring medical folks who can talk different types of medical jargon, whether it's about lactation, menopause, mammograms, to kind of keep our women's health team up to date on these medical standards. But I'll also try to change it up a bit and bring in community members so that they can bring in context as to what our patient population is facing, like what is current social economic factors that they face that affects their access to care. Mm -hmm. So, for example, this summer we have a couple speakers coming up talking about bi folks' access to healthcare, as well as Muslim women and how they access healthcare as well. Mm -hmm. So thinking about how these kind of intersectional identities affects folks' health disparities and their access to healthcare. Mm -hmm. Another another one of my hats that I wear is that I help in terms of health education, Mm -hmm. specifically for tobacco cessation. So LGBTQ folks are more likely to smoke and more likely to use tobacco, Mm -hmm. not only to kind of deal with environmental stresses, but also because tobacco companies have historically targeted LGBTQ communities as well as other communities. Mm -hmm. It's actually really interesting how they have and some of the records of them doing this is actually public and them being outright in their emails of saying, you know, we are targeting people who are gay because we know that they will smoke more due to the oppression that they face. Wow. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. And also not only for LGBTQ folks, but tobacco companies have also targeted the African American community as well, which is why these two marginalized communities experience more smoking rates than others too. Mm-hmm. The situation that we have set up for the program is to provide this 45-minute to hour one-on-one session talking to the person about why have they come today. So when people come, they've already made the step to want to be in the program. So understand what is their tobacco use, like what does it mean for them, and realistically, what does quitting mean to them? So what are the steps between you using tobacco now and quitting later? And, you know, this doesn't have to mean you have to quit tomorrow, but it means putting quit plan in place of taking small steps. Mm-hmm. and being able to eventually reach that goal. So it's not just a one-time thing. We also continue to meet with them, too. Got to. Cool. Yeah, so that's our tobacco cessation program. And then the other two things I do is research and outreach. So I help to coordinate different research efforts. We actually have a department called the Family Institute that helps you coordinate research. Specifically, some of the topics I work on include intimate partner violence, contraception, thinking about how LGBTQ folks use contraception, as well as HPV. And then there's outreach. So specifically for the Women's Health Program, we do the Audrey Board Cancer Awareness Brunch every single year. So this is specifically targeted towards women of color who are affected by cancer. And on top of that, I also do just outreach to the general community. So we have a grant that allows us to promote a holistic health for queer women. So in the past, we've used it to do film screenings. So we recently had one on a movie called Her Story. 
So that kind of talked about the history of the feminist movement within Boston. And this was a great intergenerational event. It brought older folks, younger folks, and it was a great dialogue about what that meant and how does that affect our current and past queer feminist movement. Mm-hmm. We also have coming up a Crowman's Empowerment Series. So this is a workshop series with different organizations basically giving tools regarding sexual health, healthy relationships, as well as resiliency. So thinking about using storytelling and narrative telling as resilience. Other programs we've done are Smoke the Word, Yoga Series, but these are just ways to involve the community and give them tools of empowerment. Mm-hmm. Got you, got you. How did, like, I'm curious, what was the training process like to doing all of these things? Because you, <laughs> you literally do everything. So, like, um, that's... <laughs> yeah, no, that, that is a great question. I was actually thinking about this the other day. So I didn't have a training process. This happens a lot in entry-level and non-profit positions. So for anyone who wants to do something similar, I would say, you know, be a self-starter. I think it's really important to see that, you know, you want to help marginalized communities. I think it's really important to reach out to community organizations that are already doing that work. Mm. Because you don't want to duplicate work, work that's already been done. And also, it's just a great way to network. Right. So coming into this position, I actually, and, I, and sometimes I'm like, I think to myself, why did they hire me? <laughs> but then uh, coming into this position, I, I had to do a lot of networking and, you know, getting my own resources and understanding what the Boston LGBTQ scene and community organizing is like, because I didn't have any context before this. So, so there'll be sometimes where I was like, huh, you know, I did have a big learning curve and I'm like, huh, why'd they hire me? And I was like, well, but I'm still doing a job. So, right. <laughs> so there's that. So I would say, yeah, I would say if anyone wants to get into similar types of work, I think being a self-study is like really important. Got you. That is real. Yeah, I can certainly relate to wearing a lot of hats and just just figuring it out along the way. Because, you know, there are even situations in which, you know, with a nonprofit, different grants will open up and it'll be for a position that like an organization has never quite done before. You know, there's a little bit of guidance, like as an organization, oftentimes everyone's trying to figure out how a certain role looks. So but it sounds like yours has been able to like coalesce very smoothly, which I'm super happy to hear. So just out of curiosity, you know, you talked a lot about your outreach efforts, your research efforts. You've spoken a lot to this notion of like intersectionality. So I'm just curious how you're able to ensure trans inclusivity specifically. Yeah, I think that that's really important, especially when you just think about the marginalization of folks and the discrimination and stigma that trans folks face and that they continue to face. I think like, you know, identifying specifically as a cis woman, like knowing when to check myself, I think is really important. You know, when I'm planning an event or outreach, kind of thinking about it, taking a step back and like, did I consider all the resources and what trans groups are doing same or similar work and who can I partner with so I don't duplicate the work that's already been done right. um, and making sure to include diverse voices at the table. Mm-hmm. So for example, we had movie panel that we had was about queer feminism and as I was planning the panel, um, I had like all four of the people set place. I was like, oh my gosh, it's so good. Mm-hmm. I'm done. I advertised, all set. And then, you know, I kind of took a step back. And I was like, you know, actually, if we're going to talk about queer feminism, we need trans folks at the table. You know, we need to have trans folks present. We need to consider all diverse folks within this community because this community is very diverse. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having to take a step back and be like, you know, Tiki, you actually need to reach out to trans organizations and invite a trans panelist to come and provide that perspective as well. And also trans folks in the room so that this person is not tokenized. Right. I think, you know, taking a step back and checking yourself is very important. Mm-hmm. And then for the workshop series I have coming up, 
asking the facilitators, well, first of all, making sure that there's trans folks present in the room who can receive these resources, as well as make sure that there's trans facilitators as well. And then also talking to the facilitators and making sure that the language and the tools that they use are like trans and gender inclusive. Mm-hmm. I think not checking all the boxes, but checking yourself, I think, is important. Don't think because you have that one trans person, it's okay. Right. How are you creating a space that's trans inclusive? Mm-hmm. Right. That is real. And I'm so, I'm so glad you said that because I think oftentimes it's so funny how folks can do that. I feel like when people hear the term tokenization or like the idea of someone being a token, the go-to is typically race and how they mm-hmm. think about that. But like that literally can happen at any yes. intersection of identities. <laughs> and so I think yes. it's so, in the, it's funny how like you can sometimes find people of color, queer folks, etc., who will like tokenize trans individuals and like other types yeah. of people. And I'm just like, it, it's funny the lack of reflectiveness sometimes that can yeah. be revealed. So I really mm-hmm. do appreciate you kind of making sure that that notion is expressed and like talking about how like just having like a trans person at the table is not like okay, we we did our piece. It's like yeah. um, okay, like that's that's cute, but like at the same time, you know, you really don't want to get into that lane of being like, oh, well, this person has like the trans experience. Like this is a person who is trans, but like they do not mm. represent the entire trans community. So exactly, super glad you mentioned that. I guess stepping back a little bit in my work, I work a lot with health department staff. My organization, we're all about building multi-sectoral partnerships. So like mm-hmm. doing work with activists, with researchers, artists, etc. So especially for folks who might be researchers, activists, artists, health department people, whatever, who work specifically like in LGBTQ health, like in your opinion, how can we better center women in our efforts? And mm-hmm. when I say women, I mean like cis and trans women, yeah. bi and lesbian women, etc. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you kind of touched on it right there, talking about different community organizations. I think it's really important to partner with folks who are already doing the work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, continuing to provide them with resources, especially if they're doing the work well, you know, they're already doing this work. So, like, why duplicate it? And I mm-hmm. think putting resources together is really important, especially resources that affirm LGBTQ folks and women. So I think collaboration one is really important. And I think being really intentional about the space that you create. So if you're trying to attract women to an event, like say that it's a space for men, you know, don't be like, OK, we're going to have this picture here. Maybe we'll use things that we think are feminine. No, I think being like really intentional about the space that you create is really important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, acknowledging if your language is not inclusive. So, you know, making sure that you have folks who are represented at the table, you know, not just a token person, but multiple folks who can, you know, see if that language is inclusive. So let's Mm -hmm. say you want to attract women and non-binary folks, like explicitly like saying that I think Mm -hmm. like is really important. So I think like being as specific as possible, but also being inclusive is really important. Right. And getting feedback from you know community organizations and collaborators who can tell you if said language is inclusive. Right. And I think just normalizing, you know, this cultural competency, because I think oftentimes we're like, okay, there's the LGBTQ organization and they've done all they've needed to do. Mm-hmm. But what about organizations that might not be explicitly LGBTQ or women-centered? Like, we need to normalize these issues that these organizations face and don't think that it's just something that an organization that specifically says that they serve these populations should do. Because mm-hmm. LGBTQ folks and women are accessing care everywhere, every different places. So we need to think about not just making it for these spaces that specify these populations, but also for all places in all spaces. Right. That is real. That's super real. And I'm curious, you know, it sounds like a lot of the work that you do really caters to this idea of health equity and just ensuring 
healthcare in a very intentional way. So I'm just curious, in the work that you do, what's your vision of health equity? One place that I need to work on is measuring effectiveness. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's like my strong point, but it's definitely a place that I need to work on. But I would say health equity is ideally meeting someone where they're at. You know, a difficulty that I face and I think others face too is like location. Mm-hmm. Fenway Health is located in a very like, like there's luxury condos like next to Fenway. You know, like there's like mm-hmm. these different things next to Fenway that kind of make it inaccessible to folks. We can't currently control the, where it is right now. But mm-hmm. thinking about, so as a place that has these like luxury things around it, how can we make it more accessible to folks? So I think health equity is really about accessibility and really, really about meeting folks where they're at. So if we have an event at Fenway, like what are we doing for the folks in, so talking about Boston, Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, these locations that might not have direct access to all these things, I think is really important to consider. Right. So I'm just kind of curious, what got you into this work and what keeps you motivated to keep doing it? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Like thinking about where you came from and, you know, how do you get there? How did I get here? Right. Um, so I think it was really interesting because I wasn't necessarily, I'd say I was definitely attached to my Jamaican and Black culture, but in terms of understanding myself as a woman, specifically as a queer woman, like that didn't come up for me until I was in college. Mm. Uh, I went to Wellesley College, which is a great place. And, you know, I recommend people to go there. Um, but it's a predominantly women's college outside of Boston. And it was just, for the most part, like a very liberal environment for me. And I got to connect with black women who, you know, I didn't get to connect with in college because I went to a predominantly white institution. So being around these black men and being like in this sisterhood was really important for me. And bringing those bonds allowed me to understand uh, my black womanhood more and like what that meant for me, what it meant for me to be a black woman. And then specifically, you know, as a queer woman, you know, being in this predominantly female environment allowed me to be more open with myself and allow me to understand who I am a bit more. And Wellesley in colleges in general, I guess, with their resources for LGBTQ folks and kind of as a way of being like more independent, you know, and away from home. I think college itself was a growing place for me that allowed me to be independent and on my own and explore my womanhood. Well, Tanika, you've honestly like blessed the show with some (laughs) great knowledge and input. I'm just curious, do you have like any final words? So yes, I did. (laughs) And I don't want to like throw jargon among folks. Um, Oh no, you're fine. You're totally fine. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. But I did want to talk about bi women because I think that's very important. I think that's a community that hasn't really been talked about a lot. Talking about bi folks and bi women, you know, biphobia is something that's real. And bi folks are often told that their identity isn't, are they straight? Are they gay? But it's like, no, I'm neither. I'm bisexual or, you know, my sexuality is good and I don't want to have to define it for you. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting because bi folks make up most of the LGBT population, but it's, you know, one of the most ignored, as well as like, People of color and trans folks are more likely to identify as bi, but we don't kind of talk about this intersectional identity. Mm-hmm. And we talk about how the environment is already unsafe and unsupported for people who are lesbians and trans folks, but think about you know being bi and having folks reject this identity of yours. Mm-hmm. That that's something to think about, and you know some things that bi women face are more employment discrimination as well as they face higher rates of intimate partner violence, as well as anxiety and mood disorders. So I think we need to think about how do we create environments of resiliency for bi women and bi folks in general that is affirming for them, considering, you know, how much of the population for poor folks they make up and how diverse this population is. Right. 
That's real. And like for both straight and gay identified folks alike, like what are some interpersonal everyday things we can do to better center bisexual people, especially bisexual women? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's important, like in terms of your support system and community, if someone comes out to you as bi, listening to that person and not, and not asking them, well, are you sure? You know, reaffirming that person, making sure that they understand that there are resources out there. There's places like the Bisexual Resource Center that provides awesome material for bi folks. Mm-hmm. And as well as there's different support groups as well. So, you know, helping a person with finding different resources and reaffirming their identity is really important, as well as supporting and donating to organizations that support bi folks too. Mm-hmm. That's really important as well. Got you. Awesome. Well, that is real and i'm so <laughs> glad that you mentioned that because i think that's something that i mean a lot of the biophobia that i witness typically comes from folks who identify as gay and so i think that like yeah it's it's interesting how you know oftentimes gay folks might be like oh like what like i can't you know be oppressive when it comes to like it's just a sexual exactly. orientation but like absolutely biphobia is a real real thing so i think that mm-hmm. calling it out for what it is is important so i'm super glad that mm-hmm. you brought that up but yeah so was there anything else that you want to share? Well, I just want to thank you in general for giving me this voice and this platform. Like, I don't think, like, even I was like, even realizing things during this that I was like, huh, mm-hmm. what does that mean? What would I tell my child self? You know, like things like that, that I hadn't thought about and like gave me some internal reflecting. But yeah, again, Tiniko, thank you so, 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 so much. And yeah, honestly, this episode really gives folks a lot to think about and a lot of reflection to do. Mm -hmm. So I just really appreciate you sharing space and like allowing us to kind of learn more about you. So I really do appreciate it, honestly. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Of course.